This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello, and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we look at all of our favorite horror films from the classic the camp to the cringe through the lens of disability. I'm your host, Nicole, and I am thrilled to have you here. Now, before we get into what is on the examination table for this episode, a little bit of an update from last episode. So, for the Midnight Club, we were still wondering if it was going to come back for a second season. There hadn't been an official announcement And just uh, over, I think, a week ago, the announcement came through that it wasn't going to get a second season. Not only that, but Mike Flanagan announced that after his next series, The Fall of the House of Usher, which is coming out, I think, probably mid-late next year, uh, he's parting ways with Netflix and is going to Amazon. So, kind of a little bit of a big shakeup there. Now, if you want to see kind of what was planned for Season 2 of The Midnight Club, uh, there is a post that Mike Flanagan shared that kind of details, you know, what, you know, direction they saw some of the characters going. Some of it, I think we had pretty strong inklings about, and there's some few surprises there, I would say. Um, I would say I'm a little disappointed with how Sherry is still, I think, seemingly underserved just on what I read, but again, this is just on what I read, so who, who's to say? But, yeah, kind of a, a surprise and a bit of a disappointment there. I really did like the first season, and I'm sad it's not going to continue. I thought, It was a surprisingly strong series and something a little bit different. So, who knows what will happen, you know, even further down the line. But I guess we'll all have to keep our eyes peeled now for what Mike Flanagan brings to Amazon. So, that out of the way. What is on the examination table for this episode? Well, we are going back into King Country, and I'm going to be talking about the 1990 Rob Reiner film, Misery, adapted from the 1987 Stephen King book. Now, of course, this would be Reiner's second Stephen King adaptation, uh, coming off the heels of 1986's Stand By Me. Now, I'm not going to get too heavy into the kind of background of the film or the book because I want to leave that in much more capable hands, particularly those of The Losers Club, one of my absolute favorite Stephen King podcasts. So I know I've mentioned them, I think, on other Stephen King episodes here. So definitely check them out and I'll put a link to them in the show notes, but they have episodes on both the book and the film. That's kind of what they do, and these are pretty meaty 
uh, deep dives. So um, I highly, highly, highly recommend checking those out if you really want to kind of dig in deep to the, I think, meat of the film and the book. But I'll give, I think, just kind of a brief overview. So, uh, one of Reiner's partners at Castle Rock had brought Misery to Rob Reiner after he had read it and thought it would make a good film. And Reiner had thought that, well, surely it's already been optioned. And turns out it hadn't, so he he kind of got got right on it. And Warren Beatty was originally attached to play Paul Sheldon. And going as so far as to, I think, do some work on the script, but ended up backing out. And that's when Jimmy Kahn was brought in. Now, Rob Reiner talked about kind of discovering... Uh, Kathy Bates. She'd done only a small bit of film work at that point, but he had seen her on stage and was really impressed. She came in and read for him, and within just a little small bit, he knew that, you know, she could do it. She was going to do a great job. And she was kind of confused and thought that she was getting the brush off and she didn't have the part. So, um, if you, I think, watch this on HBO Max, connected with uh, Turner Classic Movies, there's a good little uh, bit at the beginning with an interview with Rob Reiner that is kind of an interesting watch. So, kind of goes over some of that. But the film was released in 1990, and it got really really fantastic reviews and specifically Kathy Bates performance was a real standout for a lot of people it goes on to win an Oscar and she joins the small group of people who have won four performances in horror films and yeah the rest is kind of history this is considered I think a very tried and true uh king adaptation I think one of the top notch if people, you know, give you their top fives or top tens. This is usually going to be pretty high on that list. So yeah, that's kind of the the bare bones backgrounds of the the film. So let's get into it. died. You have a compound fracture of the tibia in both legs and the fibula in the right leg is fractured too. And as soon as the roads open, I'll take you to a hospital. In the meantime, you've got a lot of recovering to do. There is nothing to worry about. You're gonna be just fine. I'm your number one fan. My name is Annie Wilkes. I think one of my clients, Paul Sheldon, might be in some kind of trouble. You mean Paul Sheldon, the writer? Well, everybody sure likes those misery books. They had it at the store, Paul. They said he checked out last Tuesday. Isn't that a little strange? I guess it was kind of a miracle you finding me. In a way, I was following you. You were following me? Oh, Paul, I've read everything of yours. The 
the misery novels. You must be a good man, or you could never have created such a wondrous, loving creature as Misery Chastain. Very kind. The presumption must now be that Paul Sheldon is dead. You dirty bird. How could you? Misery Chastain cannot be dead. Misery spirit is still alive. I don't want her spirit! I want her! And you murdered her! You don't think he's dead, do you? And don't even think about anybody coming for you, because I never called them. Nobody knows you're here. And you better hope nothing happens to me. Because if I die, you die. out. Is this what you're looking for? Eventually, you'll come to accept the idea of being here. Annie, whatever you think I'm not doing, please don't do it. Annie, for God's... Shh, darling. Trust me. God's sake! It's for the best. God, I love you. All right, so here is our plot synopsis. Famed novelist Paul Sheldon is the author of a successful series of Victorian romance novels featuring a character named Misery Chastain. Wanting to focus on more serious stories, he writes a manuscript for a new novel that he hopes will launch his post-Misery career. So it's important to note that at the beginning of the film here, he has just released or is getting um, to publish his latest misery book, but it is kind of the entry where he's killing off the character. It's called Misery's Child, and he is going to his cabin in Colorado, part of his tradition, to write his new manuscript. While traveling from Silver Creek, Colorado, to his home in New York City, and this is after he's written his manuscript, uh, Paul is caught in a blizzard and gets into an accident, rendering him unconscious. A nurse named Annie Wilkes finds him and brings him to her remote home. Paul regains consciousness and finds himself bedridden with broken legs and a dislocated shoulder. Annie claims to be his number one fan and talks at length about him and his novels. She offers to look after him until the telephone lines are reconnected and the local roads reopen following the blizzard. Out of gratitude, Paul lets her read his new manuscript. She is angered by the profanity in his new work, disturbing him, but she apologizes. When she reads the latest Misery novel and discovers that Misery dies at the end, she flies into a rage, revealing to Paul that nobody knows where he is and that she had never informed any kind of authority or his agent that she had rescued him, effectively holding him prisoner in her secluded home. Annie forces Paul to burn the only copy of his new manuscript. When he is well enough to get out of bed, she forces him to begin writing a new novel titled Misery's Return, and when she begins uh, to bring the character back to life, 
One day, when Annie is away, Paul begins stockpiling his painkillers. He tries poisoning Annie during dinner by spiking her wine with crushed painkillers, but fails after she accidentally knocks over the glass. He later finds a scrapbook of newspaper clippings about Annie's past. Annie was tried for the deaths of several infants in the hospital where she worked, but the trial collapsed due to lack of evidence. Annie had quoted lines from misery novels during the trial. When Annie discovers that Paul has been sneaking out of his room, she breaks his ankles with a sledgehammer to prevent him from escaping again. The local sheriff, Buster, is investigating Paul's disappearance. Clues lead to, lead to him to pay Annie a visit, but she fatally shoots him when he finds Paul drugged in the basement. She then attempts to kill Paul in a murder-suicide, but Paul, concealing a can of lighter fluid in his pocket, convinces her to let him live long enough to finish the novel in order to give misery back to the world. When the manuscript is done... Paul asks for a cigarette and champagne, to which Annie complies, but to her horror, Paul uses the lighter to set the manuscript on fire, telling her, I learned it from you. Paul then strikes Annie with the typewriter after she tries futilely to save the manuscript, and they engage in a violent struggle, with Paul suffering a gunshot wound to the shoulder from the revolver. He trips her, causing her to strike her head on the typewriter, then crawls out of the room, but Annie attacks again. Paul grabs metal, grabs a, a metal doorstop and bashes Annie in the face, finally killing her. Eighteen months later, Paul, now walking with a cane, meets his agent, Marcia, in a restaurant in New York City. The two discuss his post-misery novel, and Marcia tells him about the positive early buzz. Paul replies that he wrote the novel for himself as a way to help deal with the horrors of his captivity. Marcia asks if he would consider writing a non-fiction book about his captivity, but Paul, who suffers psychological trauma from the experience, declines. Paul then sees a waitress approaching him, which he hallucinates as Annie, commenting that he still thinks about her once in a while. The waitress tells Paul that she is his number one fan, causing Paul to meekly reply, that's very sweet of you. So, like I said, I'm not going to go too heavy into the book, but one thing that I think is important to note here is the, uh, a couple of little differences here. So, first off, in the novel, he's not hobbled necessarily in the same way he's not sledgehammered in the foot and he takes an axe to his foot and so in the end of the novel um it's a i i think a bit more of a somber ending he's walking um he's dealing with addiction um unable to write and he happens to see a child um with an empty cart with, I think, a pigeon in it, and it begins to inspire him. But he's too, I think, kind of in the throes of uh, kind of PTSD from what he had gone through. And so uh, the film, I think, has a much more, I think, uplifting type ending. He's obviously moving on. 
Um, he's able to write um, and seems to just kind of be getting through the day today. He's still dealing with a lot, but um, he seems to be able to kind of manage these moments in kind of effective and, and healthy ways as much as possible. But what I really want to talk about are kind of the elements that play into Paul's experience as someone who's, you know, survived a pretty horrific car accident and um, has survived a pretty traumatic event and is worse for wear physically, mentally, emotionally because of all of it. Now, one of the things that I think I've mentioned in the past, but it's kind of a pet peeve of mine, especially when we think about slasher films, is that the people who are still standing at the end of a film are kind of relatively unscathed. They may have been shot. They may have been stabbed. They may have been sliced, diced any number of different things, but all that we can see of this is maybe a tiny cut, scar, um, something like that. Kind of negating the fact that, you know, folks that live through these kinds of experiences would have real lasting physical impairments. Um, you know, I think, a an example of this that really instantly comes to mind is Dewey in the Scream series. They even play on this a little bit with Dewey having a bit of um, kind of uh, a limp in Scream 2. This ends up going away for reasons, but the guy has been stabbed in the back and in areas that would definitely affect kind of your motion and mobility and so yeah these types of things would happen and it would happen to pretty much all these characters and one of the things that I think makes this kind of interesting but honestly a lot of King's work is that he really does allow kind of those lasting impacts to exist and really be part of that character and be part of that story. So, we start off with Paul having survived this car accident and we see someone coming to heroically save him. And this is going to be Annie. She gets him out of the car and he is pretty rough and tumble. Um, basically on the verge of death, I would say if she hadn't got gotten to him when she did. So he wakes up and his legs are completely shattered. They are black and blue. Um, we see just a couple of glimpses of them and his shoulder is uh, pretty mangled as well. So he's fairly non-mobile at that point and we do get to see him because this does take place over a fairly long duration of time we do get to see a lot of these injuries 
heal. But I think an important thing to keep in mind is that probably because he wasn't given immediate medical attention, that there probably is still going to be issues with walking, even if he hadn't been sledgehammered in the feet and ankles, um, he would probably still have some issues with being able to walk and run and have that kind of mobility that he had previously. And probably a little bit with the shoulder too. But we do get to see some of these injuries uh, heal. In fact, it becomes kind of a thing, especially with the shoulder. He's actually, you know, using his typewriter that he gets from Annie to kind of build up his his strength because his legs are still, you know, kind of unable to hold his weight. And so he's, you know, building up the strength in his, his upper body so that he can, you know, I guess, take her on when it comes time. Now, you can tell that Paul is uncomfortable, I think, for a couple of different reasons that we need to keep in mind. One is, you know, the situation. Even at the very beginning, when Annie is just, you know, being that assertive, OMG, I'm your number one fan, before she goes completely aggressive and horrifying, it's still a little uncomfortable for him and he doesn't really know how to kind of how to handle it but he keeps calm and you know is really appreciative of the fact that hey not only is this my number one fan but she's a nurse so she can take care of me and she's gonna get me help once conditions outside improve but there's also the fact that Paul is now relying on a stranger for care. And that's obviously really uncomfortable. He's in a really vulnerable position and you're never going to not have that at the forefront of your mind. You know, his livelihood is really dependent on her and she asserts that in a couple of different ways. And, you know, I think it, kind of plays on also this idea of, you know, the negligent, the harmful, the murderous kind of caregiver trope that we see in other horror films from time to time. But, and I think it's also something that I've mentioned um, about in, in previous episodes, how it plays on this fear particularly as we age or this fear of, you know, anything can happen to us at any time and it would be the absolute worst thing to, you know, rely on, you know, a family member or a friend or a stranger, um, you know, coming into our home to provide us care in those instances. And, you know, for folks with disabilities, for folks that need that extra level of care, um, that's kind of a day-to-day -day thing. We don't necessarily have, um, you know, kind of any other way about it. We have to rely on our family and friends 
and, you know, what resources we have to get those levels of care and get those levels of support that we need. And in any instances, even if it's not someone who needs kind of that regular day-to-day care, you know, for someone like myself who has to go in and have procedures and surgeries on a fairly regular clip, um, you know, needing to have support in the home uh, when I'm recovering because I'm not able to move, um, you know, having someone come into your home that you don't know is scary. And even having someone that you do know that you don't want in your home uh, or that you don't necessarily trust can have horrific consequences. And, and that's kind of how those stories play out. But it kind of plays into this idea of, oh, aren't we lucky that we don't have to to, to do that, um, you know, for folks that, that don't. Uh, and obviously this is kind of amped up to a different level because we know that Annie is of a different kind of kind of killer caregiver, uh, you know, mixed parts of Nurse Ratchet and uh, Florence Nightingale, I guess, where she's gone on trial for killing infants that she was in charge of. So, yeah, um, just something that I thought was kind of an interesting little element there. Um, but as the story progresses, one of the things that I really do find fascinating every time I watch this film, like we all know that Kathy Bates is absolutely phenomenal in this film. Um, just top notch, but I'm always really taken with Jimmy Kahn as well. Just how kind of a million thoughts seem to be kind of on his face in each moment that he is on screen. You can see that he is constantly thinking through what each next step needs to be. He understands that planning is really the only thing that he has kind of, uh, you know, his, his most useful tool in this situation. He really needs to plan to plot to kind of get the lay of the land um, and, and have a pretty good plan in mind to execute. I also really like just how generally smart Paul seems in always trying to keep calm in these kind of horrifically absurd moments. He knows that that's really his card to play if he wants to be able to not just survive, but be able to kind of pull any of Annie's strings. And he knows how to do that really, really well. So I think, you know, in as amazing of a performance as Kathy Bates gives, I think sometimes we we don't we don't give Jimmy Kahn the love here that he deserves. And I really think you gotta have both of these hitting exactly right um, for it to come off as well as it does. So yeah, just something that really um, kind of stands out to me there as well. Now, while Paul's shoulder does completely heal, as we see, we're not, we only get a couple of glimpses of his legs. Now we see like the bruising and 
stuff has clearly gone down, but assuming that it's still broke or, you know, she's obviously not doing physical therapy with him to help kind of maintain any kind of muscle strength. So his legs, even if the bones had, had kind of repaired, um, you know, he would still be weak and probably unable to kind of hold his weight walking. So, I don't know. We're not really told if his legs are still broke. Um, you know, if it was just something that happened in the accident, his legs were completely shattered. You know, bones in his legs were completely shattered. Um, again, kind of necessitate, nece necessitating that immediate, um, you know, emergency medical intervention. Um, you know, going in for surgeries and, um, you know, putting pins and all of that stuff that, you know, happens if you've had a really horrific accident and you've gotten busted up. So, but we don't know. Um, you know, we see him lifting up the typewriter, so we know that he's able to get some strength built there, but don't know about his legs. But it doesn't really even matter because, of course, he gets, he gets smashed. His ankles uh, end up getting hobbled. And it's, I was really surprised. It's, it's been a while since I have seen this. And when I watched it yesterday, I, you know, I remember really having to brace myself for that that scene. It's a very short scene. Um, I think it's just like a minute. Um, you know, she's really just kind of in and out to do it. Um, not a lot of fanfare. Um, she gives a little bit of, you know, a speech, but it's pretty quick and brutal. But it's not as graphic as, you know, you think in your mind. It's a really great, I think, uh, you know, you see just enough of the floppy foot to kind of make your stomach turn. Um, and that's really all that you see. Um, so, you know, again, even regardless of how, you know, far rec his recovery had gone now, you know, that's kind of beyond the point. He's not going to be able to walk. And one thing that I also, you know, was thinking just, you know, having talked about the Midnight Club before and the character of Anya and the actor who played Anya having a situation where they had, you know, injured their foot and, you know, after a period of time, it just continued to caused issues and they ended up having to get their foot amputated. And so, you know, assuming that this would be something that, you know, could feasibly happen to Paul because, again, he's not getting that immediate medical care. So, yeah, I don't know. Um... Now, going back to the idea of the relationship of 
kind of a care recipient and a caregiver. Now, one of the things that I think is always a struggle, and I say this as someone who works in the field of caregiving, caring for someone is challenging, especially if it's, you know, a loved one, a, a family member, a friend, um, because it's not easy. It isn't just about the kind of various tasks associated with caregiving, but it's the time and the kind of the elements that you give of yourself in caring for someone. And within that, it can be really hard and have an impact on the relationship with the person that we're caring for because we can get really upset and angry if they're not showing us gratitude, if they're not being grateful for what we're doing for them and not understanding and not taking the time ourselves to step out of our situation and think about theirs and say, well, yeah, you know, it's, it's the same idea as if, you know, you, you're checking in on someone who is sick, right? Someone has the flu. And so, you know, you're checking in on them and, you know, for a few days you're bringing them food or you're bringing them medicine, you're coming in and checking in, um, you know, they don't feel good. They're not going to be, you know, the most upbeat, pleasant uh, folks to maybe talk to. They're tired. They're sick. And so, you know, that can play out in a couple of different ways. And again, it can make those relationships really, really difficult. And I think that that's something that with Annie and kind of her role as both, you know, caring for Paul and being kind of this formal caregiver of you know, being a nurse, she really is looking for that, I think, validation and appreciation. And you can also see that because she very, very pointedly, you know, mentions, well, you're not being grateful for this. When he talks about the paper um, that she brings him when she's wanting him to write a new misery book, he explains to her, look, this is going to smudge. Yeah, he's doing it out of a very specific way so that he can get her out of the house and go and get her to buy this other paper where, you know, the paper that she bought would obviously work, but it does smudge. And she can't dispute that. And, but she gets really angry. Well, I went and bought you this and I done this. And now you're having me do this. Um, it's just an interesting dynamic to the relationship that we often don't necessarily see play out in a very, I think, pointed way. And this film kind of does in a couple moments. 
But let's talk about the end of the film. So like I mentioned, there is a difference in the book. Um, but within the film, you see Paul using a cane. He goes into the restaurant and he is talking to his agent. And his agent says, well, would you like to kind of write this real-life account of what happened to you. And he says, no. Because the assumption is the book that he's just released is kind of a fictionalized story of what happened. And she's like, you know, there's there's buzz and interest if you wanted to write kind of this, this real-life uh, kind of story of what happened to you. And he says, no. And I think that this is, you know, for me and watching it this time, this kind of stuck out to me. It kind of goes into uh, a bit of exploitation and almost areas of inspiration porn. You know, we love when people tell these inspiring stories of how they were able to overcome and live uh, these you know, challenging circumstances or these horrific circumstances in Paul's situation. And we consume these stories without necessarily thinking about the, I think, effort and pain and turmoil that can go into telling these stories, um, especially if it's not, you know, really guided by that person but there's just this expectation that you know stories of people who go through these experiences don't belong to them that they should be out there for public consumption sometimes I feel like there's a connect there with the types of stories that folks with disabilities are are kind of challenged to to share in a public way and they're kind of having to tell these stories in very specific ways in very consumable ways ways that make everyone feel good and not to say that this would necessarily be the track that paul would take with his you know memoir or whatever he would write about it but that's always the assumption like we want we have to take a, a, a part of us and put it out there in a way that makes other people feel good, even though it's not something that necessarily should. Um, so, I don't know. That stuck out to me, particularly on this watch. But, you know, I do think that it ending in the way that it does as opposed to how the book ends, is great in showing, uh, you know, the lasting impacts of what Paul has gone through, not just physically, but also, I think, mentally and emotionally as well. So, yeah, um, I think in terms of, like, the disability stuff, there's not, you know, this is kind of light, it's not um, you know, a, a real kind of deep dive into 
a lot of kind of disability components, but I thought it was just kind of interesting to to talk about some different aspects of disability related to, I think, some more trauma uh, using this film. So there you go. I hope, I hope this has been kind of interesting. Now, like I said, I, I don't want to get into the background of the book and all of that, but they're in doing a little bit of research. I did come across also a really cool article from Slash Film that came out just this year um, in May that talks a little bit about, um, you know, the book and the themes and, and how it resonates with kind of what King's lived experiences are and comments that he made about, you know, what, you know, what certain things in the book, um, you know, kind of represent to him. It's really interesting, and I'll link it there, too. I, I, I really enjoyed reading it, um, and there were, you know, some really cool things that I hadn't really thought about that were hit on. So um, that will be linked in the show notes as well as, um, you know, getting to the Losers Club podcast. I definitely recommend checking out both of those things. Thank you so, so much for listening. And a huge thank you, as always, to Anatomy of a Scream for being the home of Bodies of Horror. If you haven't already subscribed to the Anatomy of a Scream feed wherever you get your podcasts, what are you doing? You're missing out. Make sure to subscribe and listen to all the other amazing shows that pop up on the regular. And new shows coming through all the time. I know that there's a couple coming down the pike that are quite exciting. So you'll definitely want to be subscribed and tuned in for that. And until next time. Scream Pod Squad.